Hello and welcome to In the Isles, the movie and TV podcast that before any romantic encounter will confirm you are not a reincarnated spirit possessing someone else's body. I'm James Rothwell. I'm Dan Acton. This week we'll talk about what we've been watching, including Phase 4 of the MCU, Japanese Schoolgirls, Death in Hollywood and stand-up comedy. For conflicts of interest, we're talking about underrated films of the 2000s and our main review is Wonder Woman, 1984, finally available in the UK. How are you? My my little fella isn't doing too well. My son, not my penis. We had to take him for a COVID test today, so that was fun. But the saving grace in all that was that I listened to the Wolfwalkers soundtrack throughout while shoving a swab up my nose. So, you know, if you have to go for a COVID test, put the Wolfwalker podcast on. Did want to mention as well, though, we've had some brighter news this week, some light at the end of the tunnel. We've had quite the interest on the Instagram page, haven't we, in relation to your Wolfwalkers post? We have, yeah. 227 likes for my Wolfwalkers collage. We've gone global, there's no doubt about that. Everyone knows who we are now. That is undoubtedly a worldwide viral Instagram post. (laughs) Exactly. So thank you, James, for floating the... In the Isles flag in spectacular fashion, which leads me nicely on to talking about the socials. I don't even know if I'm saying that properly. I don't get social media. With very little promotion, we've grown as a podcast steadily. And in 2021, we want to take things to the next level and we need you. I've said it a few weeks now, but I'm not going to stop saying it. If you've already listened via Apple Podcasts, please leave us five-star rating. It literally takes you three seconds. What's your problem? It's the best way to get us in more ear holes, so please do that. Um, thank you very much. So from listening pleasure to our watching leisure, shall we discuss what's graced our TV screens this week? Yes, let's do that. James, what have you been watching? WandaVision episodes one and two on Disney Plus. I'm coming in strong with the most commercial trending thing that I can. What do you know about this? As little as it features two of the characters from the MCU, the lesser characters, and it's almost done in some sort of 50s, 60s style sitcom like Bewitched. That's the extent of my knowledge. I think that's all you need to know, really. Elizabeth Olsen and Paul Bettany are very good in this, underused in the MCU, in my opinion. Setting aside what this means for the next 10 years of Marvel films and TV, I'm happy to see these two every week for the next eight weeks. It's weekly release. Scarlet Witch appears to be existing in this sitcom where her and Vision are living a normal American life, trying to hide their powers. Episode one, it's the 50s. Episode two, the 60s. And I assume it progresses along those lines judging from the trailer. It sticks with the sitcom style so well that I was actually drawn into it and I was taking the jokes as they are and just laughing, just enjoying it. Like a bit where Wanda is cooking dinner and she uses her powers to shut the kitchen window doors when someone's back is turned. But then there are moments where the illusion is compromised and the camera setup changes and you get more close-ups and eerie music and then it snaps back into the sitcom again. It's very intriguing 
I think a lot of credit should go to the writers and directors for achieving this old sitcom style so perfectly. And this show existing shows how strong the MCU brand is that they've done something this not normal. It's unfortunate then that Falcon and Winter Soldier looks like a completely conventional action series. So I'd recommend it. What I'm not going to engage in on this podcast or in my internet surfing time is eight weeks of speculation about the true nature of all this. Is it Mephisto? Is Scarlet Witch in control? Is it Kang? Are they inside the Soul Stone? Did you see the Hydra symbol? The torture is made by Stark Industries. Who's on the radio? Who is the beekeeper? Just a Google search for the number of episodes showed an article asking, is a wine bottle the answer to everything? I'm just going to watch it knowing there's more to it, but I'm not going to let that overshadow my enjoyment. Yeah, interesting. I did debate with myself whether to watch this, but didn't make my way around to it, so glad to hear a glowing review from you. Two questions. Is the shift of time periods jarring then? Because I would imagine you get quite settled with, oh, this is the 60s, I'm warming to it. Oh, forget that, 70s. Funnily enough, each episode's only 22 minutes. So you don't get much time to settle into anything. And it doesn't explain the time shift. It just starts. It's the 50s, next episode. Now it's the 60s without any explanation. And maybe they're just going to keep doing that. And I think that's the idea of the whole thing. It's not really fully explained what is going on. Okay. Second question. Do you need MCU knowledge to appreciate this? I suppose it's a hard thing to answer because you have that knowledge. But do you think you could watch this independently and enjoy it? I think you could because it's carried by the very energetic performances and the chemistry between Elizabeth Olsen and Paul Bettany. Okay, I'll add that to the list. Thank you, James. What else? That's the normal stuff out of the way. If you're watching WandaVision thinking, this is one of the weirdest, unpredictable, quirky things I've ever seen, then you're not ready for Forest of Love Deep Cut, which is a series from last year, possibly the year before, on Netflix that is an expansion of a film of the same name. Have you heard of this? Is it a film from the 70s? No. No, then I'm getting confused with something else. Continue. It's in your wheelhouse. It's about killings and violence. It's so hard to describe that I'm just going to give you the IMDb sentence. Nothing is as it seems when a charismatic con man and an aspiring film crew delve into the lives of two emotionally scarred women. It's written and directed by Shion Sono, who has been called the most subversive filmmaker working in Japanese cinema today. Yes, it's a Japanese series. This is the most unashamedly depraved assault on the senses that I've seen in a very long time, maybe ever. The opening 15 minutes has got dead bodies, schoolgirls dancing around in their underwear, a screaming overbearing father and a girl speaking to camera with a face covered in blood. And it's not long after that that the nudity and torture begins. The con man, called Joe Murata, and his constant insanity and charisma is what is missing from The Serpent, previously discussed on this podcast. You never know what he's going to do. There are scenes where he'll start slapping people in the face just because he can. And then he'll ask to be slapped back and be punched. And then say, come on, hit me harder. Come on, come on. And then he'll start singing suddenly when he's at dinner with people. Throughout the series, you see people get sucked into this vortex of debauchery. And I was fully sucked into it as well. I could not stop watching. Later in the episode, I'm going to slate Patty Jenkins 
Whoa, 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 he can't he can't give it away yet. Ah, carry on. If you want to see an example of a director being a director and creating tone, performances, unique visual style, use of music, editing, music editing, shot selection, each scene telling a story, watch this. I was actually reminded of Arto's Theatre of Cruelty. Oh, that's a blast from the past. Yeah, which is, for the uninitiated, a primitive ceremonial experience intended to liberate the human subconscious and reveal man to himself that calls for communion between actor and audience in a magical exorcism. Gestures, sounds, unusual scenery and lighting combine to form a language superior to words that can be used to subvert thought and logic and to shock the spectator into seeing the baseness of his world. Loosely translated as acting a knob on stage. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this was such an assault that I was thinking in those terms. It's so out there. It's so insane. It's challenging. But if you're happy to wallow in decadence for five or six hours, then watch it. No English dub is available, only English subtitles. I'm not saying that the, there's no meaning behind the words when I normally say to you, oh, that sounds good, I'll check it out, and that, you know, I'm, I'm just lip servicing you. But that got me a bit excited, and I think, I don't think, and nay, I know I will be checking that out. Did you say it was a continuation of a film, sorry? It's a sort of remake expansion of a film. So the film's already on Netflix, it's called Forest of Love, with the same actor, same director. And this is just taking that story and expanding it out. If it sounds good, but you don't want to spend five or six hours with it, you can just watch the film instead, it seems. Have you seen the film or did you just go into this raw? I went straight raw into the I went straight in raw and deep into the series Deep Cut. Okay. Exciting. Okay. Thank you for that one. Daniel, what have you been watching? An apology. Um, I did say last week that I was gonna switch things up a bit and I was gonna watch more lighthearted content. I'll come on to that. But I failed. So first off is Night Stalker the Hunt for a serial killer. This centers on the infamous serial killer who roamed the streets of Los Angeles in the 1980s. He was utterly terrifying and also a bit of an enigma in the fact that there was no real consistency to his MO at all. Sometimes he robbed others, he sexually assaulted, and if he was feeling bored, he murdered And it was really confusing because he targeted children, both sexes, old age pensioners, and literally anybody in between didn't seem to have a preference. Down to the program itself, it's not groundbreaking in its format or the way that it's filmed. Then again, what are you expecting from a documentary? They follow the same sort of format. It's to be expected. It does do some faceless reenactment work during some of the interviews to add more atmosphere to the stories that are being told, and that's quite effective. I will say that if you've just started on this dark journey into the minds of madness and true crime as a genre, and you're not aware of the Night Stalker, he is a really fascinating killer, not least for the fact that his MO was so all over the place, but also the tie-in with the satanic panic gravy train that was rocking about at the time and his ultimate demise in itself is unlike any other case that I've ever come across but I'll leave that for people to unfold themselves I'm not going to tell you what happens as you would guess I'm well versed in the history of this man or animal is probably a better term and because of that I wasn't expecting to glean so much more new information from it 
However, that wasn't the case at all. What I found really interesting is that it tells this story from the perspective of the investigating detectives on the case, and they give you a much more granular insight to some of the crime scenes, the forensics, basically the investigation. And I wasn't privy to any of that information. So it's not a glorification piece. It's not like, oh, look what a calculated, disturbed individual he was and how brutal these crimes are. It's more of a celebration of the main two detectives and their dogged determination to bring him to justice through good old-fashioned police work. It's a solid crime documentary, as you can now expect from Netflix, but it's well worth your time if you're into this type of thing. If it's not, then you've probably stopped listening to this podcast because I relentlessly keep reviewing this type of content. And for that, I apologise. just want to ask an obvious question for confirmation. Is this the same as the Jake Gyllenhaal Night Stalker film? Is it the same guy? No, just purely in title, are they related? They're about two completely different things. Okay, I was not expecting the answer. Okay, good to know. I think they are. You made me question myself now. I don't have a very good memory of Night Stalker, but I thought it was just about a journalist who was a bit of an opportunist and jumped on any crime that came his way. wasn't about a serial killer, was it? Nah. (laughs) (laughs) What else have you been watching? I did half succeed this week in getting out of the world of the dark and depressing. I googled best stand-up comedy on Netflix just to balance the scales. And in my list of results was this comedy special, Bo Burnham, Make Happy. I've never heard of this, and I've never seen any of this guy's work before. After looking him up, I believe he was some YouTube sensation in the early 2000s who was signed by Comedy Central, and he then went on to create these two Netflix specials, one being What from 2013, and the second being Make Happy in 2016. I obviously watched these in the wrong order, but I want to concentrate on Make Happy because I think it's the one worth talking about. I also was a bit cautious because I don't know about you, but I find that with comedians, if you're not familiar with them, they've often built up a fan base across many years. And if you haven't seen a lot of their material, then jokes don't often land. And I sometimes find that a bit alienating and borderline abrasive. So With those concerns, I went into this expecting a standard comedy routine, and I thought, I'll I'll see how it goes. Let's let's see what my thoughts are. But this is so much more than that, largely due to the style of his comedy. I think you well know, but I'm a sucker for comedians that blend music with comedy, and this is exactly what he does. He mixes observational comedy with musical numbers. He manages to demonstrate a wide range of different musical styles throughout the entire thing. I don't think this is going to be for everyone. Comedy, by its nature, is subjective, and there's there's some controversial bits in this. He uses some homophobic slurs. It's only five years ago, but I feel like he's doing it to make a point. I don't think he is homophobic in any way. That might not land with some people. He does at one point sing a song called Kill Yourself, which could divide opinion, but he comments on it as well to make sure that you understand the message of what he's trying to say but honestly every single bit of this entire performance is delivered to absolute perfection every tiny element of his performance is timed to the millisecond it's like he's already anticipated the entire audience's reaction in advance of his performance and he uses that to his advantage 
I can understand why some people might be turned off by his arrogance, but I do think it's part of his act and not actually him as a person. And I think at one point in the show, he does full on address that. I think it says a lot that I laughed on my own in a darkened room at two o'clock in the morning at least 15 times. And it takes something powerful to do that to me. And I was smiling throughout the whole thing. In fact, that's not quite true. I say throughout, the show takes a really surprising left turn towards the end. And I don't want to spoil it, so I'm not going to go in depth. But let's just say that it left me really worried about Bo Burnham and his mental health. Because <laughs> I can't I can't really go into it, but there's a lot more subtlety to the message behind his comedy. I, you have to watch it to fully understand what I'm saying. He's not unstable in the performance. It's more, as I say, the message to the final songs within the act. It isn't the most intellectual comedy in the world, but I had a real sense of admiration for what he was trying to achieve, and I fully basked in the zaniness, sadness, and sheer raw talent of it all. Because this guy at the time, he was 26. If I possessed an ounce of his talent at that age, I would not be doing this podcast right now. So maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. I'm just trying to make myself feel better about it. There's a real heart to this that I wasn't expecting, and I won't lie, it really did touch me. Once again, similar to what I said for our end-of-year main review about Hamilton, I felt like I'd had a night out of the theatre. So if you want to experience something a bit outside of the norm, I'd highly recommend this. I mentioned it towards the beginning. This is from 2016. I don't know how it slipped past me, but it's just as relevant today. It's aged very, very well. One of the things that I find the most intriguing, he's only ever done these two comedy specials, this being the last one. He's been largely absent from the comedy scene ever since. And for him personally, I feel like this was the pinnacle of his comedic career in what he wanted to achieve. And he just thought, I'm done now. I'm moving on to something else. And respect to him for that, because he's now starring alongside Kerry Mulligan in Promising Young Woman. So he's made that transition to actor. I did look him up afterwards because I feared that he might have killed himself. He's not. He's got a career ahead of him. Good on him. Bo Burnham, make happy. Give it a go. That does sound good. I'm always on the hunt for some good comedy on Netflix. I want you to watch it. I'm fully anticipating that you will completely disagree with me, but I want to hear thoughts nevertheless. Is he American? Yes. I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just just confirming it. <laughs> Feel like there is there is some form of judgment in there. You're just not willing to say. <laughs> Lastly, Wonder Woman. I hadn't seen it before this week's main review, so I had to fully prep. I'm dedicated. I'm going to do my homework for once. It's not the film I expected. I was quite surprised by how much I enjoyed this, which has left me with what I feel is a very very false sense of security for today's main review. But first, should we talk about the underrated films of the 2000s? Let's do that. What are you talking about, you? I very much disagree Shut up, with you. that. Two. You do not have good opinions. What an idiot. I hate You can't even speak. Nothing you're saying makes sense. Conflicts of interest. In the absence of new releases over January, we have decided to review decades worth of entertainment. Last week we covered the 1990s and the most underrated films from that decade. This week, we're covering the 2000s. I texted you earlier today. I found this so challenging. I don't know what it is. It's either that my love of film exploded in the 2000s or there just wasn't as much content in the 90s. I don't know, but I had a really hard time whittling this down to three. Disclaimer at the top, I've picked films that made a significant impact upon me at the time. 
I haven't necessarily watched them for a decade or so. So if you take our advice and go and watch these and then say you're chatting a load of rubbish, fair enough. That's fine. And for me, I've used same criteria as last time. Does it have too low of a rating? Did it underperform at the box office when it maybe should have done more? Or has it just been unjustifiably forgotten? Daniel, would you like to start? Yep, I've chosen these within the same criteria as you've just justified. But weirdly enough, all mine today fall into the category of not earning enough box office revenue. First off, Frailty, 2001. And this was a no-brainer for me. Is the first film that came into my head when we started considering the 2000s. You know when you discovered a film back in the day and no one else had seen it? That's gone now. It doesn't exist. You can't do that. You just Unless you pick something really, really obscure, which I'll be honest, given some of the stuff that we review, I think we do a fine job of it. But largely, that whole thing just doesn't exist anymore. But this was one of those films. Do you know what I mean? It's gone, isn't it? Yeah, it's gone. It's gone. Last film like that for me was Tokyo Decadence, but carry on. So this is a film that stars Matthew McConaughey. It kind of stars him because he's in at the beginning and the end, and that's it. Don't see him for the large majority of it. But it's a psychological horror from the early 2000s, and it's about a man, Matthew McConaughey, who walks into an FBI building claiming that his brother is the God's hand serial killer. Serial killing. Again, I'm sorry. It's not purposeful. He then recounts his childhood story of living with a heavily religious father who thinks he's been sent a message by God to rid the world of demons. The majority of the film takes place in the past through this flashback story that Matthew McConaughey is telling us. And it was the feature film directorial debut of Bill Paxton. Remember Bill Paxton? Unfortunately, he died a few years ago at the ripe young, no time to die, age of 61. It's a really solid genre film. It's been, as I said before, many years since I've watched it, but it made quite the impression on me at the time. Very rarely do I ever hear this film come up in conversation, and I don't see it on many people's favourite lists, which is why I've included it on mine. Earned $17 at the box office, which is not a whole hell of a lot of money, and I think it deserves to be seen by more people. So, Frailty, 2001. Excellent pick, and I say that because I've never heard of it. That's what I was going for. Good one. James, what about you? My first one from the year 2000 is Titan AE, which is a sci-fi animated film. 51% Rotten Tomatoes, 6.6 IMDb. Complete box office flop, a disaster. It's mainly associated with the closure of Fox Animation Studios, and it has this stink attached to it that it was such a failure that it made the whole studio collapse. Earth has been destroyed. And this is basically a treasure hunt story across the galaxy to find a ship that will save the human race. It's got some classic 2D Disney style animation, some decent CGI ships and environments that look good for the CGI of the time. The voice acting featuring Matt Damon and Bill Pullman, not Paxton, is fine. It's good. I like the alien character designs and the ship designs the world building and the galaxy where the humans are scattered around and they're an endangered species is good. It's not that original of a story, but it's well executed. There are chases, kidnapping, escapes, father issues, betrayal, redemption. For years and years, I've remembered one line from this film. The bad guy detects a fast-moving ship and the captain says, how fast? The radar person says, recklessly fast. And the captain says, 
Akima. I don't know why I remember that line this whole time. I've seen this film once, 15, 20 years ago. I've always remembered that line, but it must have stuck with me for some reason. It's a reasonably entertaining science fiction film. Unfortunately, not available on Disney+, Plus, despite being a Fox film that Disney presumably owns now. But if you ever see it come up on a streaming service, I'd recommend just having a quick look at it. Very good. I did not see that one coming. Uh, I've not watched that myself, I don't think, because of the stink that was attached to it. I think that was the reason why. But yeah, fine. Out of the blue pick. Nice work. What's your next one? My next two are films that I believe we went to the cinema together watching, but I may recall that wrong. First one, Running Scared from 2006. Am I right? My memory might be jogged when you keep talking. Nothing's coming now. Okay. So this is a film starring the late Paul Walker of Fast and Furious fame and Vera Farmiga, who went on to have a very successful career and continues to do so. But it's about a guy, Paul Walker, who works for the mob and after a police officer, a corrupt police officer, is shot, he's put in charge of disposing of the murder weapon. Being the idiot that he is, the gun then ends up in the hands of a young lad, his next-door neighbour, who shoots his abusive father, and that kicks into motion a chain of events that increasingly gets mental. Ring any bells? No, nothing. I've not seen this film. Okay, never mind. It's a zippy action thriller that ticks along at a really nice pace. From memory, it does run the risk of trying to be too many things at once. It tried to meld together too many genres. But for the most part, I think it pulled it off. It is proper off the wall and goes to some really unlikely places. There's a bit where literally out of nowhere, Paul Walker's wife, Vera Farmiga, just so happens to stumble into the world of some child-killing paedophiles. And that scene just will stick with me to this day because it just seemed to come out of nowhere. It was random. As I said, it's far-fetched. It's over the top. It's not to be taken seriously. And I think if you come into it with that sort of approach and you like loud, dumb, fun action thrillers, I think you'll have a really fun time with it. This is atrocious because I know that I'm not going to work this out percentage-wise, but as a rough guess, I've contributed to not point. 2-5% of this film's entire box office revenue. Um, but it opened with $3.5 million and went on to make just under 10 worldwide on a budget of $15 million. Another stinker, I would say, but I had quite the ride with this film. I enjoyed it a lot. And it's currently available on Amazon Prime in the UK? For free? Yes. Oh, no, Brenner. Go and get it watched. James... Continuing down the list, what's next? I feel like your options are, are, are much better than mine. My next one from 2003 is Daredevil. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I, you d just try and justify this one. The legendary failure that failed in every way. I bring this up partly because it is on Amazon Prime in the UK, and I wanted to talk about something that UK listeners can go watch if they feel inspired. Even Ben Affleck has criticised this and tried to distance himself from this. All I'm saying is, it's not that bad. It's better than the worst bloated DC films of recent times. It's one hour and 44 minutes, which is a full 45 minutes shorter than Wonder Woman 1984, which is a plus. It was ahead of its time. It's got a strong female character that beats the protagonist in a fight 
Colorblind casting of Michael Clark Duncan as Kingpin. Main character has a disability. Practical costumes with muted colours like the MCU. A gritty tone and setting that predates Batman Begins by two years. And it spawned the first female-led Marvel film, Elektra, that predates Captain Marvel by 14 years. All I'm saying is, revisit this and I think you'll be surprised by how not that bad it is. And you get that awesome Evanescence song, Bring Me Back to Life. You know the one. You just alienated so many people. <laughs> when you hear that, trust me, when you hear that song... I, I agree, I like that song, but there's a big, big, huge base of people who hate Evanescence and this film. You're kind of talking us out of following, James. Well, <laughs> if your next film is Electra. I'm going to hang up on you myself. My, my next film is, is a good one. It is a good one, I promise. Okay. Again, I just note, you can rewind if you want. All I've said is, it's not that bad. But this was most underrated films. Not not bad films of the 2000s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I might, I might have mis, misunderstood the brief. I knew I should have picked The Mist instead. Oh, that was on my honourable mentions. Our credibility hangs by a thread. So this needs to be good. What's your next one? I think I've saved us. I've picked 2005's Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Did we watch this one together? We did watch this one together. Thank God. Yep, I'm glad you've picked this. Yep. Okay. So this is a fun action noir thriller. All thrillers this week from the writer-director of Lethal Weapon, Shane Black. Shane Black, now most known for taking a massive shit on the Iron Man franchise with Iron Man 3. You may remember the highest grossing Christmas film of all time, if anybody listened to the Christmas episode. Anyway, how to summarise the film, I'm going to divert to your tactic from earlier. I can't, so IMDb. A petty thief posing as an actor is brought to Los Angeles for an unlikely audition and finds himself in the middle of a murder investigation, along with his high school dream girl and a detective who's been training him for his upcoming role. I absolutely adore this film. I think from memory you did too when it came out, so I'm confused why it's not on your list. But there was Daredevil, so obviously I had a stiff competition. It's a a slick and stylish send-up of noir-type films that's not taking itself too seriously. The murder mystery at its core is an intriguing one. It has Val Kilmer and Robert Downey Jr. at the absolute top of the game. It's witty. The dialogue is fast-paced and razor-sharp. I was obsessed with this when it first came out, and I think it's such a confident film with a fantastic screenplay. It is highly praised and perceived by critics, so it's not underrated in that sense. It didn't earn very much box office-wise, and I do feel as though it's a film that is often forgotten, and that's why I wanted to bring it back into people's consciousnesses. Also noticeable for being the film that brought Robert Downey Jr. back into the Hollywood game after a good few years in drug addiction hell. It's been noted that without this film, he would not have gone on to take on the role of Iron Man. So we've got Kiss Kiss Bang Bang to thank for that, but it's a good film in its own right. A really good pick. Val Kilmer also appeared in our 90s episode with Batman Forever. Can I just mention Daredevil again? Because you've reminded me of something that links to Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. John Favreau, the director of Iron Man, is in Daredevil. Oh, is he? He plays the lawyer friend of Matt Murdock. And Kevin Feige is a co-producer on Daredevil. And it is said that John Favreau started his discussions about doing Iron Man five years later on Daredevil. 
So without Daredevil, possibly, and without Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, we wouldn't have Iron Man. What an accidental connection. James, I redeemed us. Go on, piss it all away. What's your final pick? 2007's Son of Rambo. <sighs> Snap! Not quite. Didn't choose it, but I was going to. Nice. Okay, I think I've recovered us. Again, not something that was critically panned. 73% around tomatoes. It did well at the box office for a British comedy. It's about two young boys who try to make their own version of Rambo First Blood. It's a coming-of-age story and a love letter to the love of film, something that we can relate to, sitting here recording a podcast about films, and maybe you listening can relate to that as well. The young actors, who were 13 at the time, are very good. A lot is asked of them, and they really deliver. Again, it's got good numbers, so you might say, it's not underrated. You're losing your touch. You're not credible. You should have left it at two films, or just one, and not talked about Daredevil. But I don't think this is as well-known and discussed as it should be. A Google search returns a paltry 701,000 results. You obviously remember this. It's a feel-good British film that is unfortunately not available on any streaming service. Maybe that's a sign of how forgotten it is. There's only seven copies of the Blu-ray available to buy on Amazon. I'm sure everyone that's seen it loved it, but it should be more well-known. Yep, can't disagree with you on that one. Daredevil, we'll have a conversation offline about, but that one... Yeah, on the same page with you. I, I really enjoyed that film. Another one that I believe we went watching to, at the cinema together, and I think we walked out and hugged each other. No, we didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Surprisingly emotional. It's got it's a comedy, but the two lads, you know, they, they fall out and they have their own problems and they come from a different backgrounds. So that plays into the story as well. It was a difficult decade, as I referenced earlier on, because there was just so much variety and content. Jim, surely you've got some honourable mentions. I do. I think my challenge was that I was thinking of films, but then thinking this isn't underrated, I can't justifiably discuss it as underrated. One of those films was The Mist, directed by Frank Darabont. Someone years ago told me to watch this with no explanation. They just said, watch it, and oh my word. For a film that is 90% set in a supermarket, it's better than it has any right to be. It has one of the best endings in any film ever. You've seen this as well, haven't you? Yeah, I'm not going to fully take credit because it might not have been, but I thought, was it not me who recommended it? Don't know. It, it wasn't. It wasn't. Okay. I back him up anyway, whoever it was. Or her. Great film. Yeah, really, really good. Another honourable mention, only because I found it by accident yesterday and it's available for free on Amazon Prime in the UK. 9-11, The Falling Man. This is a short documentary that was originally aired on Channel 4, and it is about a photograph taken on 9-11 of a falling man. And it's a very sensitive, well-made, thought-provoking documentary about the formation of a collective memory. So it starts off talking about the photographs that were taken and the video footage that was taken of people falling from the Twin Towers and 9-11. And the narrator talks about a collective act of spontaneous self-censorship. And then it's all about the power of an image and whether some images are just too controversial and too emotional to ever be published. 
and it's out there on Amazon Prime. So watch it if you're in the UK. I think I have heard of it. I've never seen it though, but yeah, I'll give that a watch. Taken quite a, a dark turn. Daniel, do you have any honourable mentions? Yes, and I'm not going to add a lot of info around these because I just remember, plain and simply, I watched them, I liked them, nobody talks about them. I don't really recall a lot of them other than the fact that I like them. So first off, one of Tim Burton's most critically panned films, and that is Big Fish, starring Ewan McGregor, and Alison Lohman, who has now disappeared. To be honest, she's not in anything anymore. But I just remember this being a really enchanting film. I had a very similar reaction to it. Ironic that I should use that word to when we watched Enchanted, the Disney film at the cinema. Just really, really nice film to watch with a heart to it. I think you liked this, didn't you, Big Fish? I did, and I'm regretting not picking it for today. I should have just picked it. The ending for this is so emotional. I really, really like this film. So ignore the critics, a good Tim Burton film, Big Fish, that was up there. Next one, I didn't pick because I've spoke about it before, Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story. I think for a spoof of a musical biopic, it works in every single way possible. It's just such a funny film. Really, really delightful. I revisited it six months ago, as I mentioned on the podcast. I laughed my ass off. The missus didn't even break a smile. The Mist was on my list. Sunshine, the Danny Boyle film, which I think was met with a mixed reception when it was released. The sci-fi thriller about saving the sun before it dies, if memory serves me correctly. But I do really enjoy that film. And I think it's got a cracking soundtrack as well, again, from memory. And the last one that I didn't mention because it was on our Tom Cruise discussion was Vanilla Sky. If I had to pick one film, it would be Vanilla Sky because people do not hold this in high regard, but it is obviously one of my favourite films of the 2000s. Your honourable mentions are better than all three of my full picks, I think. (laughs) I was very close to doing Big Fish and I did consider Sunshine. Yeah, but obviously Daredevil just beat it out, didn't it? I'm not going to cut out the Daredevil stuff. I'm just not going to put it in the image on Instagram. Hello? like to order an opinion, please. This film is new, fresh point of view. Call me sit back, this is a fact. We in the aisles, here are some aisles. Thoughts in sync, tell you what to think. I'll listen to you, but please don't rap again. This week's main review, at last, is Wonder Woman 1984. Diana, at you. It's like now one day has passed. I don't want to be like anyone. I want to be an apex predator. You've always had everything, while people like me have had nothing. Well, now it's my turn. Get used to it. for rules the answer is always more the way i fly they will never find us i forgot to tell you what radar will they will they shoot at us What did 
Are your staff trained in email security? Do you know what can happen if your staff make simple mistakes with their day-to-day email use? Here's just two examples from world-famous movie studio Warner Brothers. Patrick Jenkins asked Warner Brothers CEO Ann Cernoff to email him some suggestions for Christmas presents, be it toys, books, or holiday destinations. Days later, Ann sent a quick email saying, Wonder Woman, 1984, Healing Crystals, Egypt. Anne didn't check the email address and actually sent her message to Patty Jenkins, who took the email as garbled instructions for a Wonder Woman sequel. Months later, days before shooting, Patty Jenkins sent the Wonder Woman 1984 script to her assistant, Sophie Ola, saying, print this, 10 copies. Sophie obliged, but no one realized that Patty actually sent the first draft. And that's what they used to make the film. Avoid these catastrophic mistakes by arranging email security training for your staff today with sonicwin.com using promo code in the IELTS 10 for a 10% discount and a bonus course on how to properly secure the fully fueled fighter jet that you keep in your museum. Or IMDb summary, Diana must contend with a work colleague and businessman whose desire for extreme wealth sends the world down a path of destruction after an ancient artefact that grants wishes goes missing. Daniel, what did you think of Wonder Woman 1984? I mentioned earlier I caught up with Wonder Woman just prior to watching this film. That was probably a really bad idea in hindsight because comparing the two films back to back, my word does it become ever so apparent that this film is... Well, I'll not give the game away. I think I already have. We'll get to it. 15 minutes in, I was so optimistic. I've really not been ignorant to the criticism leveled against this film. But at that point, I thought, you know what? I don't care if this is a cheesy throwback trip down memory lane to, you know, superhero films of yesteryear. In fact, I'm damn well in the mood for it. You can tell from the word go that this is far less serious in tone than the first film. And again, I thought, I can go along with this. I want something a bit lighthearted and breezy. But then it trudges along, seemingly going nowhere. We get over an hour in, and minus the mall action scene at the very beginning, this has been a film about an independent woman navigating the world of employment in America in the 1980s. And at points, I felt like I was watching an episode of Sex and the City. (laughs) I'm all for female empowerment. I sincerely am. And I will say that for a character that is the symbol of such a thing, it doesn't forcibly push the gender politics of the era into your face. But when it does choose to communicate it to you, just like a lot of other things in this film, it is so on the nose that it completely rubbed me up the wrong way. I don't know if you agree, but with the exception of the character of Steve, and he is the only exception, plus he's from a different place in time altogether. Every man is either seen ogling women in spandex outfits in a shopping mall or the horny men hurling creepy abuse at people. In fact, there's a scene in which Kristen Wiig walks down the street late at night and six men in a row are like, all right, darling, oh, you're looking mighty fine or fancy a shag. I'm paraphrasing. Every man is an arsehole. Let's... And I'm, you know, we'll get serious now. A lot of us are. I'll say that about my own sex, but it's not every single one of us. I just felt like it was a misrepresentation. It pissed me off, to be honest. 
it's a film that uses its epically overbloated runtime to repeat things that you've already seen in the first film, and we'll go into that in spoilers in more detail. But two points around that that I want to make. The opening bit is young Diana taking part in some sort of athletics trial, which is similar-ish to the training montage that you see in the first Wonder Woman film. Now, continuity-wise, that makes naff all sense whatsoever, because in the first film, Diana's being trained by her aunt. Connie Nielsen, her mother, discovers it and absolutely loses her shit with her sister. Here, though, this event takes place before that, but she's fine with it. Didn't make any sense at all. Again, another example, this fish-out-of-water concept that we see with Gal Gadot in the first film. They flip-reverse it with Steve, and he's getting accustomed to the weird and wacky world of escalators and 80s fashion. I've literally just seen the exact same thing played out in the last film. Come in at it from a different angle. Give me something fresh. The script is so undeniably lazy that it made me angry that I put more effort into formulating a solid argument as to why it's so shit. There's more effort gone into that and pulling this apart than there was in the screenplay. There's no rhyme or reason to it. It's the central plot device in the film. is a monkey's paw type thing, which we'll go into more detail in spoilers. But it gives the screenwriters free reign to do whatever they want and abandon any issue you might have with plot holes. To further that point, things conveniently fall into place because the progression of the plot demands it. Steve's back. Why? because she wished for it. She wanted to make things invisible, which she's never done before. That's okay. She'll just will it into existence. Minus the monkey's paw, genie's lamp, rampant rabbit-looking mythical object, whatever it is. Oh, she wants to fly. Uh, Yeah, go on then. It's 80 minutes in before you get anything resembling an action scene. And I'm not saying that I needed it to be a constant onslaught of fights and explosions. But at that point, I'd lost complete interest in the film. The problem with it is that 90% of the time, tonally, it's not taking itself seriously at all, and it plays out like a bit of a comedy, minus the laughs. But by the end, it wants you to take it seriously, and it just didn't succeed in doing that at all. It plays out as formulaic as you could possibly imagine. There's nothing original about it whatsoever. It's like a terrible pastiche of, frankly, better superhero films. What the fuck are DC doing? It's the only company I know that's intent on ruining their own livelihood by making increasingly poor decisions. Do not rent this film. Go and watch Batwoman Season 2. Very well put, very well put. It seems that DC movies take one step forward and 1,984 steps back. It's hard to believe this is made by the same people as Wonder Woman 2017, a film that I thought was good. It was good. But now it looks like a one-off miracle of a film compared to this. We are going to go into more detail, but I'll try to summarise as well. The Magic Wishing Stone is such a cliched, tired, overused, parodied cartoon device, and I cannot take it seriously as a foundation for a plot. I can't. And that plot is not worth two hours and 30 minutes. Almost every scene is too long. An hour of the film passes completely without incident. It's not long with too many subplots and details. There's just nothing. There's just stretches of nothing. There are four action scenes, two of which are the two opening scenes, the Olympics competition and the mall scene. Wonder Woman doesn't seem to have any personal, compelling or interesting connection to the villain. She just wants to figure things out and it only becomes urgent at the very end. Virtually everything in this film has been done better elsewhere. The best example being Catwoman in Batman Returns, which is better than the cheetah storyline and they did it without any CGI. It's 
shot in an inexplicably inconsistent way. Sometimes it's garish 80s. Sometimes it's more toned down. Then it's Zack Snyder level dark. Gal Gadot can play this role well, but they put too much on the actor and the character and both collapse under the weight of this disaster. Kristen Wiig does a good job, but her final form is a CGI cat. So why bother having a slowly evolving performance at all if it's going to end with a cat that you can't even see because it's too dark? Pedro Pascal, put your helmet back on and go back to The Mandalorian. The initial professional critic response, and to a lesser extent, the ongoing critical and public response, is totally baffling to me. This is a failure on every level. It's bloated self-important, lazy, misjudged, and it seems to be protected by a spontaneous collective act of either delusion or generosity. I would not recommend, I'm not waiting to be asked, would not recommend. I thought it was all right. Yeah, it was okay. <laughs> what is uh, most, what, one of the most baffling things is that a lot of the marketing was about this being in the 80s, and the posters that we've seen for two years is the super colourful background. And the trailer has that song that's used in everything. I don't even know what it's called now. Is it the song that appears during the flight sequence? I haven't seen the trailer. But when she actually flies in this film, is it the same? No, it's... I take it you noticed that music choice, though, did you? When she flies. No, what was it? Back in day, it was used for everything. It's from the Sunshine soundtrack. It's uh, Adagio in D minor. It's called. You'll recognise it. I'm oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Just thought that was a bit weird. Blue Monday is the song. Blue Monday. Ah. That was used in the trailers. And despite all that, they don't seem to go that far with the 80s stuff. The opening scene, the second opening scene in the mall is very 80s. And the gym scene is all 80s. It's like the Call On Me remix video. Mm. Yeah. That people in the UK will know what I'm talking about. Everything else seems out of place. Or those two 80 scenes seem very out of place. It's like they went back and shot those two scenes, the mall scene and the gym scene, later. I'm not saying that they did. I'm saying that it's so out of place in terms of costume, lighting, tone and performance that it looks like it was filmed later by someone else. It's like Batman Returns and Batman Begins being mashed together. That's how drastic the tonal shift was for me. Did you feel that as well? I can't say I noticed it as much, but now that you've drawn attention to it, it does seem to abandon that aesthetic largely for the remaining two hours. <laughs> there isn't much other than the, you know, old style television sets that sit in certain scenes. There's not a lot that points towards the eighties. So I agree with you on that. It's like someone said more eighties. We need more eighties for the marketing. There's not enough eighties music in this film. If you're going to think about the eighties, you need that music. It's not there. And I don't know why they didn't license more eighties songs for it. That is a mystery to me that I really like an answer to. I demand answers to why there's not more 80 songs because that would help place it. Yeah, I was just going to say the same thing. I think that would have made up for the absence of it throughout the rest of the film, but they didn't go down that route. There is some like synth-style musical score when I think Kristen Wiig's running at one point, but that is the only thing that I can recall. Yeah, they could do something like what you get in Thor Ragnarok where there are some more synth Flash Gordon type sounds in there but on the whole even the Hans Zimmer score it's your bog standard Hans Zimmer score mm. in terms of the direction in general this is what I was hinting to for my Forest of Love deep cut review a lot of these scenes are long and they don't seem to have any 
point or atmosphere or drama to them or what they are trying to do just doesn't work. There's one example that I want to point to, which is in the trailer, the scene where Steve Trevor tries to try on different clothes and it's a role reversal from the first film. And he's trying to pick the right outfit from the wardrobe of this guy that he doesn't know. It doesn't have any life to it. And if you watch it closely, you can feel that Chris Pine is reaching for some kind of humor when he jumps up to celebrate right after he's found the right outfit. But there's just nothing there. There's no life to it. It's not funny. I don't think I even cracked a smile during the trying on of clothes scene. I don't, they didn't even. He just failed miserably, like a lot of this film. There's some strange special effects, lazy special effects. There's a bit where she's in Egypt and she's hanging on the back of a truck. She uses her lasso on something above her and she puts it back and the lasso is immediately coiled back up at her waist in a single frame. It's not done properly. So you've they filmed her with her arm up and putting her arm down, but the prop of the lasso is on her waist. So they just have it reappear. It's really lazily done. It's sloppy for this level of film. One thing that I did notice that may have already been pointed out elsewhere. I've honestly not seen it. And I'm going to put a picture of it on the Instagram. You know, when she wears the golden armor that is also revealed in the trailers. Yeah. When she's pressed up against the wall in close up, you can see that the armor is actually a soft rubber suit because it folds up right against her neck. <laughs> you can see it bending up and it's not a solid metal piece of armor. It's really, really obvious. And there's a, a smaller moment where she brushes past the wall and you can see the rubber just flex against the wall as she brushes past it. It's intuitive armor. It can adapt. That's what it is, James. Yeah. Go with the floor. <laughs> it's, the, it's the Iron Man nano machine armor from <laughs> Infinity War onwards. You know, in the action scenes, I thought she was too floaty. She floats around too much and that made it a bit cheap. Even though there's only four action scenes, when there are action scenes, she just seems to float around on wires and float across the floor. Maybe that's a deliberate choice. Maybe they want to present her as someone that floats around gracefully. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't look good. Yeah, I agree with that. I think the, like I said, I don't think I've seen the trailer, but I don't think I could have helped but see some form of TV spot. You know, the the action scene that you referenced in Egypt where the truck flips and she's like jumps over it. Even that in the actual film itself, I didn't feel like it when I saw the TV spot, but that doesn't look great. That looks a bit, hmm, so quite janky. There's too much slow motion, I think. Maybe that's what affects it. It's like they didn't know how to create any dynamic action, so they slow everything down and hope that it looks cool, but it doesn't. There's no cool hand-to-hand combat or stunt work, but there's no impressive CGI battles either. It's somewhere in between with Gal Gadot on wires or CGI making people and cars fly off screen. So the action is just not interesting to watch. What little action there is. I will say if you watch these films back to back as well, you will get sick of her deflecting bullets. It's like literally her only power. I, I, I just don't want to see any more of that. Thank you very much. James, we've been necessarily harsh on this film, I feel. I was hoping we'd come into it and go, oh, doesn't deserve all that. It does. It completely does. It's not the victim of overhype. It's a plain and simple bad film. But if you had to pick one thing that you would say is a positive of Wonder Woman 1984. One glimmering bit of hope, what would it be? Or something to latch onto? Gal Gadot can play this heroic character really well. 
I think she's very good in this role and I'd like to see someone else take over for Wonder Woman 3 and I'll gladly watch her in another Wonder Woman film. What about you? What's your positive? If you erase the last 30 minutes of the film, which we'll discuss more in spoilers, I did enjoy Pedro Pascal's crazy, maniacal, evil villain performance. I thought it was one of the more entertaining aspects of the film even if the script didn't really serve him well. Okay. We've beaten around the bush enough. Shall we go into spoilers? Yeah, if we have to. Bruce Willis' real name is... Tyler Durden. Sank at the end. Oh, thanks a lot. Spoilers. This isn't just me making it up for the sake of the podcast. I finished this film, and as soon as the end credits came on, I had an audible reaction, and I just went, oh... That was my reaction to this film. I, it was just involuntary. I just couldn't help but react in that way. That's uh... And one of the main reasons for that was because, James, it's a bloody body swap film again. It's like six episodes now. It's getting ridiculous. We can't get away from it. If it happens again, I think we have to null and void it. Whatever the film is, even if we've announced that we're reviewing it the week before, we just can it and do something else. We can't carry on in this vein. It's looking like we've rigged it. I agree. It's like we're building up to a top five body swap films YouTube video. Yeah, if, if we're doing another body swap film, we'll do an emergency text and just say we're doing Lawrence of Arabia instead. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose we'll expand on that point. So it's body swap because Steve, what's his surname? Trevor. Steve Trevor, the love interest of Wonder Woman. He's killed off in the first film. He sacrifices himself but he reappears in the body of another man, which I believe you've done some digging. There's been a bit of controversy around this, hasn't there? Yes, there has. I was going to tuck this in at the end, oh, but do you want me oh, to sorry. go into it? I'll leave it till the end. Keep okay. listening to hear <laughs> about the moral confusion of this film. Well, I suppose to talk around that point then, because we'll come on to it. He does what we saw in the last film. He dies again. It's just lazy. Why are we treading old ground come up with something original. I just didn't care about this plot point. I wasn't even happy to see him here because I had an inkling that we, he was just going to disappear like he did in the first film again, and he was just literally there to serve the plot, and he was. Another thing that wasn't developed was Wonder Woman herself as a character. And I say again, I like Gal Gadot. She played it well. But this character doesn't seem to have grown. And within the film, she's largely unchallenged by other characters. And that means that she doesn't grow. She's not become friends with anyone. She doesn't have a group of allies, which even Batman does. She has this obedient sex doll of a man that nods along for all her exposition. And that makes her a dull character. She's not gone anywhere in 70 years is the next film going to be in 2050 where she uses AI to create an Android version of Steve Trevor that she has sex with once before realising it was a mistake? And then the film after that is going to be set in 2120 where she uses alien technology to make a clone of Steve Trevor that she has sex with once before realising it was a mistake. Is this all that that character can do? She's got a job though, James. Give her credit. Yeah, she's got a job. She has a job in a museum that pays for a really, really nice apartment in Washington. Don't know how that's possible. It's progression. I say again, I do love Gal Gadot. I've been a fan of hers since she was in the Israel Defence Forces, but too much is asked of her in this. She doesn't have the range for it. She's like Tom Cruise, who can do what he does better than anyone else. 
but Tom Cruise is not going to play Abraham Lincoln. Even Chris Evans in 20 years of Captain America didn't do a five minute speech in close up at the end of Avengers. And that's what Gal Gadot is asked to do here. And it doesn't work. I 100% agree with what you've just said. I struggled with the ending. I found it, I found it embarrassing to watch hearing her deliver those lines. And like I referenced before, doing this weird shift in tone where everything's been so lighthearted and a bit jovial throughout and then suddenly, oh, I'm supposed to take this seriously, did not work for me in the slightest. So now that we're in Spoilerville, can we talk about the writing and the plot and the ending and how some parts just don't make any sense? So they see Maxwell Lord in Egypt. Set aside that they just see him when he's driving past them, which is completely lazy. Why don't they just follow him to where he's going? Why do they attack the convoy and put Steve in this man's body at risk? You can just track him and ask him, ask Maxwell Lord what's happening. It seems like an unnecessarily violent solution to kill some Egyptian soldiers just to ask Maxwell Lord, what are you doing? Yeah, I'll agree with you on that as well, but I think Patty Jenkins was probably quite conscious of the fact that it was at the hour and 20 mark and we hadn't had an action scene, so a hand was forced. <laughs> yeah, and the scene ends with them, with um, Wonder Woman saving those two kids and then that's the end of that. But even within the action, there's bits that don't make sense. So she gets Steve back, but that causes her to lose her powers. So she's in mortal danger at times. But there are two points where she doesn't get shot at point blank range. When she's in Egypt, a guy is pointing a mounted machine gun at her at point blank range, but he doesn't shoot. For no reason at all, he does not shoot her because she's not supposed to die yet. And if he did shoot her, she would definitely die. There's a later scene in the White House where one of the guards who is paid to kill people if they attack you in the White House, he's pointing his gun at her at point blank range, doesn't shoot. But it's not clear whether she has her powers or not. She can sit in between two trucks and force them apart, but then she gets grazed by a bullet. She can't rip a lock off a door, but she can beat up 10 guys at once. It's all over the place. You can be cynical about why she isn't shot by both those men, James, but I'm going to hold on to that message of hope and say, do you know what? I think those two scenes show that chivalry isn't dead. That's why she didn't get shot. Before we get onto the ending proper... There's one lazy bit that you might not have even noticed, right? And tell me if you can explain it, because you've watched this more recently than me. She renounces a wish. She leaves Steve behind. She learns to fly suddenly. We'll just set that aside. She learns to fly. She seems to be flying for a long time. Then it cuts to her in her apartment, retrieving her golden armor. Then she's flying again, and she arrives at this bunker, which is at a distant location. It seems like she flies in her normal costume for a long time, longer than the distance to her apartment. Does that make sense? It's yeah. Like she flies out of Washington, teleports back for the armor, then starts flying again. I've got to be honest, I can't offer any wisdom around that because I'll tell you how that worked for me. She's flying. I do something else for three minutes. And when I look back, she's in a golden armored suit fighting Cheetah. Don't know if she got there, nor did I care, but that's how it works for me. <laughs> you, were, you were two hours and 20 minutes in by that point. So. Yeah. And then when she gets into the golden armor, so here we are at the finale, big finish. She arrives, there's some soldiers there. She does a sliding kick into two of them, does the bullet deflection with her bracelets. 
they just all fly away. So that's the end of that. And then the big finish is the CGI cat fight, a literal cat fight, which you can't see. It's got no lighting. And there are parts of that that don't make sense. She can't seem to fight back. It seems like Cheetah is stronger than her. She's underneath her armor. But she's already renounced her wish. So she should already have her powers back. So what difference does it make whether she's got the armor or the wings or not? Why do the stuff where she's getting beaten up with Cheetah? It didn't make any sense. And then the actual choreography of that fight, it's them spinning around a pole. It was crap. Just people spinning around a pole and then they fall into some water and she electrocutes and drowns her fellow strong woman. Oh, is that what happened? Yeah. <laughs> but then Cheetah lives anyway after being electrocuted and drowned. She lives anywhere and just kind of gives up and just waits for the film to end. Just like the rest of us. <laughs> Patiently waiting, impatiently waiting, actually. And she renounces her wish as part of the montage of everyone else on Earth renouncing their wish. So it has no impact. She has no further dialogue. And they copy the Black Panther ending where she just looks off into the sunset, sitting down, looking a bit sad. Digging into a bit more depth on that final... I mean, it's not the final scene. We have this even more sickeningly saccharine ending with Gal Gadot meeting the person that she's raped. We'll come on to it. And admiring his clothes, whatever. Um, but before all that, there's this montage of everyone renouncing the wishes as Gal Gadot channels Pedro Pascal and delivers her message to everyone to renounce the wish. And then he has this moment of realisation where, oh no, I, I should really be worried about my family and specifically my son. And he just jumps off this, what's the word I'm looking for? Podium? Yeah, he jumps off this podium that's in really like emphasised God light. And then he, I, I'm sure I remember this rightly, he just runs off flailing his arms about and it just looked pathetic. And for one, I thought that looks bad. And two... I get that he's had a moment of realisation, but why are you letting him get away? What is wrong with you, woman? Jesus. I'd, it just lost all credibility. In fact, no, it had already lost credibility, but it just it's made it even worse. I just thought, wow. That's another example of the lazy direction. So you have this villain get his big moment of realisation, and he turns his back to the camera and runs off. He runs out the room, but he doesn't run across the room so you can see what he's feeling he runs out away from the camera just out some door and that's it but then you see later on that he sees his son in a field and he's all happy it's strange it's that's one example i'm glad you brought that up i'd forgotten about that that is a strange like lazy way of doing that he just runs out the room next scene and then weirdly as you mentioned, you get this, what I can only imagine was supposed to be an emotional scene with his son, where you're like, oh, look at him almost redeeming himself by recognising his failures in life and how he's let down his son and blah, blah, blah. I did not give a toss. I had no connection to that character because he's been the one thing that was supposed to despise and not root for throughout the entire thing. How do you expect me to have this U-turn when you don't deserve it? In the slightest, it didn't work. It really didn't work. It didn't. He caused too much damage to be forgiven by the end. Yeah. Or had he done too much damage? I want to get your opinion on this. Do the wishes leave a physical trace or not after they've been renounced? This is another lazy inconsistency. A wall is built in Egypt. It's literally springs out of the ground. That leaves a hole and a sort of stream when it disappears. It's left a physical trace. 
But the nuclear missiles that are flying through the sky, they seem to evaporate without incident. At the end of the film, the world is completely back to normal. So what's happening here? Does the stone do actual magic? In which case, you could just bring Steve back to life in his own body if it's full-on magic. Or is there some sort of physical rules to what these wishes can do? There's no rules to any of this. If I had to fight the corner, which I don't know why I'm even attempting to do, but it's if it's a physical object, it disappears. If it's part of Earth's landscape, it deteriorates and is replaced with something pleasant. I don't know. I don't know how they get around it. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. It doesn't. Like people that have dropped dead, they've asked the people to die. Do they just come back? I don't, well, I'm sure we'll cover this in the in Wonder Woman 3. Referencing the ending again and this renouncing of wishes speech. This is where I feel you're supposed to understand what the message of the film is. Well, guess what? I didn't understand it. What are you trying to say to me at all? If I had to hazard a guess, I would say that it's aiming to do something similar to Soul, the movie, Soul, not our human souls, in that it's saying, don't wish, don't hope, don't aspire for anything. Just deal with what you've got and just, uh, yeah, just make the most out of that, really. Soul did that in such a much more elegant way and a lot more emotional resonance to the message as well. There was structure to it and it meant something, but in this, it's nothing. I don't know. I don't know what they were going for. Did you? I can't get my head around it either. Even the characters seem confused about what the wishes really meant. The scene where they're all reading the, the book that explains everything, Steve Trevor mumbles out this explanation about how the wishes are, are lies because the rampant rabbit wish stone is made by the god of lies, so the wishes are actually lies. Even the claim that's made by Wonder Woman at the end that the world is a beautiful place, so accept it as it is. The world is not a beautiful place. That is a hopelessly naive thing to say. And this is coming from a woman that spent 70 years seemingly doing nothing, but she's saying the world is a beautiful place. It didn't make sense. I don't know what the message was supposed to be either. It's because it wasn't coming together in, in a coherent whole. Like at the end of Soul, you said that you started crying at the last shot, and I did as well, and it was because it was all building to that, and it was so tight, and it was so well done. Everything built perfectly to that moment. This two hours and 30 minutes does not build up to a big moment where you realize we don't need to wish for things because the world is beautiful and all our lives are fine. Like you say, couldn't be further from the truth. So, <laughs> Patty Jenkins, if they can, the third one, and they're not going to make it anymore, then no wonder, woman. I'd clip that. <laughs> <laughs> spontaneous. What is not going to be spontaneous is the next two points that I'm going to make. Donald Trump, there's been some debate around whether Maxwell Lord is Donald Trump. My position is that Maxwell Lord is Donald Trump. I did the research and there's two articles about this with statements from the people that made the film. In one, Patty Jenkins talks about Bernie Madoff and Donald Trump being amongst many inspirations for the greedy 80s villain. And the costume designer had a picture of Trump, among others, on her image board. So you could go either way with that. But if this character is not Trump, why give Pedro Pascal blonde hair? Why go to the effort of doing that? I thought he had brown hair. Got blonde hair. It just looks very odd. And you have a scene where he literally builds a wall. He builds the wall. Granted, that's someone else's wish, but it does happen. And that was highly symbolic 
He stands at the presidential podium going mad. He has a business that is all fake. He's a con man. It's all for show. I believe this was written as a lazy, immature attack on Donald Trump. And it's a bit cringy. And it's embarrassing because Trump's already lost. Anyway, <laughs> he's lost. And this propaganda has come too late. I don't believe the denials that have come out that this is not being political. A lot of popular films for the past four years have been politicised. Look at the discussions around Captain Marvel, Wonder Woman, Black Panther, even Will Ferrell wearing a Make America Great Again hat in Sherlock Holmes. It's been everywhere. But now when you have the most obvious avatar for Trump in a film, oh, it's not political, it's just a bit of 80s fun. It absolutely would be if this film was released before the November election. But now it's been brushed aside. Well, I'm not going to lie. I didn't pick up on that, but that's mainly because I just wasn't drawn into the film to care about what his agenda was. But there's too many parallels for it to be in question. I think you're right. They're just trying to backtrack on what is a very ill-timed observation, like you say. Just came at the wrong time, didn't it, this film? Right. This might push us into the one-hour mark for this main review, but this this is my final pre-prepared comment. This film seems to be suffering from a kind of moral confusion, and there's a few examples of it. There's a scene where Cheetah beats up a man who Weinsteins her for a second time, which is what you've already referred to. Cheetah beats him into a bloody pulp, right? Is that a triumphant feminist moment or is it a horrifying display of power? Because the man is coded as evil. He's fat, he's got a creepy moustache, he's not dressed fashionably. So are we supposed to be happy that he's being thrown around? Or are we scared because it's the villain that's doing it? Or is that part of the confusion of the character and it's actually a successful scene? When Wonder Woman kicks the same man into a bin, that's played for laughs. But Cheetah takes it too far and then it's not, it's not right, I don't know. I don't know either, but I feel as though they have covered the backs with it being the cheater character. If, if it hadn't been the villain or one of the villains of the entire film, it definitely wouldn't have landed very well, that scene. But I think they can claim, oh no, she's a bit morally skewed because she's obviously driven towards being evil. Therefore, ignore the fact that she takes this a bit too far. This film features two strong and powerful women, except they're not strong, are they? Wonder Woman is a depressed shell without the man that she knew for a week 70 years ago. <laughs> this is different from Captain America, who's suffering from a kind of temporal whiplash from dying in the 40s and waking up in 2012. Her whole existence revolves around this man she goes to dinner by herself, it's sad, and her life is complete again when he sort of comes back. Strong and powerful woman number two wishes for confidence, but this comes by wearing high heels and tight-fitting dresses and getting attention from men, which is a confusing message. You might say that that's the lie of the dreamstone, not giving you what you really want, but Diana Prince already has those things. She's beautiful and has nice dresses. She's extremely fashionable. And her life is incomplete without male affection. What's happening there? I mean, that's a rhetorical. I know there's no answer to it because it makes no sense. You can attempt to answer it if you want. I, no, no. <laughs> that's not me, by the way, just saying, oh, you we're getting on shaky ground now. I'm not willing to comment, but I kind of am. Let's, well, let's step fully out onto the shaky ground. This was teased in the very opening sentence of the podcast. Wonder Woman rapes a man. 
Steve Trevor occupies a random man's body. At the end of the film, it suggested that that man, who is credited as Handsome Man, has no memory of the events of the film. If you lose consciousness, then regain consciousness, and you've had sex in the intervening time, you have been violated. And you can only find this point being discussed on small websites and individual Twitter accounts. Why did no one bring this up when this film was being written? It's not marginally problematic. It's criminal. And it's done by the hero in the film. And Wonder Woman, who has this childlike moral purity, doesn't immediately question what sorcery has brought this man back. She just jumps into bed with him. Yeah, I don't I don't know how I feel about that argument, if I'm completely honest. I, I understand where people are coming from, but it does feel like this is slightly leaning towards men have had it rough, haven't they? For for the last few years. Let's give them some shit back. I ju- I just don't think I mean he's fair enough, he's in a different body, but there is a conscious mind in that body inhabiting it at that point in time. I personally didn't even think about that. It did not even cross my mind. And maybe that's that's me. I'm part of the problem for not even thinking that. But I think that's people taking things too far. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. He's not a corpse lying there with somebody just straddling over him, having a good time. It, it wasn't that level of... There's but two ter- consenting people, one who just happens to be using another man's body as a vessel. He has no memory of it, nor will he ever get one through horrific flashbacks. He was under some mythical spell, so it's not going to happen. This is make-believe, it's fancy, get a grip. But it is Handsome Man's body, and he's not conscious in that body, and then he is again. There's a theft of that body that's taking place. There's a comparison to make with one of our favourite films of last year, Possessor. Andrea Riseborough possesses Christopher Abbott's body, and there is a sex scene in that film. And the way it's done it seemed clear to me that it was being presented as Andrea Riseborough, by having sex while she's possessing this body, she is violating everyone involved. That was how I interpreted that scene, that she's stealing something from those bodies. She's stealing an experience that isn't really hers. Okay. Okay. That's how I saw Wonder Woman in this scene that is aimed at children. (laughs) I'm No, we're going to just go into very dark territory and I think I'm not in complete agreement with it but I can see where you're coming from and I think we should probably leave it there yeah let's just leave it like no no just (laughs) let's back away from it let's back away from the discussion slowly if you've made it this far thank you for listening next week tune in where we will be reviewing Anthony Mackie's latest Netflix film slash failure outside the wire it's not a failure it's number one And that's why we're reviewing it. Tune in next week. See you then. In my country, we used to be able to summon music. And I've been studying how to do it. I've only managed to do it once before, but never with something this big. (laughs) 